Numbers uh, 27 and Numbers 36, we're looking at Zelophehad's daughters, and we're, we're thinking this morning about uh, how God has promised an inheritance to his people. And so if you're able to stand with me, if you would do so, as we read about Zelophehad's daughters in chapter 27 in the last chapter of Numbers, Numbers 36. Verse 1 of Numbers 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers." Moses brought the case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad had a right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers, and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers." And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Then turn over to chapter 36. It says, verse 1, this takes place later. The heads of the fathers' houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But... If they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his father's. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses for Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah. The daughters of Zelophehad were married to sons 
of their father's brothers. They were married in the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. You may be seated. May God encourage you and me through his word this morning. Father, please cause us to walk in obedience to you as we think about your inheritance in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as uh, we've mentioned before, Lord willing, we're going to be finishing up the book of Numbers this morning. And as we've talked about also before, in the book of Numbers, we encounter a group of people who are camping out. They're dwelling in tents. There are people who have been taken from bondage, from slavery in Egypt, and they have not yet arrived at their inheritance. They are in camped on, right now, as we've come to the end of the book of Numbers, they're encamped on the plains of Moab. And what we see in the New Testament is that you and I are like the people of Israel. We're we're compared to them. We are a people who have been delivered out of bondage, out of slavery to sin, and yet we haven't yet experienced the fullness of of our inheritance. We haven't yet entered into God's rest. We're a people who are camping out. Hopefully the study through the book of Numbers has been encouraging to you. It was encouraging, it's been encouraging to me. I was approached by a woman this morning who said, you know, uh, this is before first service, she says, you know, I, we, my husband and I were constantly telling ourselves, hey, we're, we're camping out, we're camping out. We need to make decisions on the basis of be, people who are being, who are camping I think that's, that's right, and hopefully that's how you're thinking as well. God tells us we're to be people who are camping out and are motivated by a promised inheritance. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do right now, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So right now, where you find yourself in the present, in in a tent on the plains of Moab, right now, do what you do for God, not for people. And then he says this, knowing, so right now you're, you're doing things with an intellectual awareness, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Right now, today, in the end of 2017, I'm to be motivated by what I'm going to receive in eternity. But I don't know about you, that's a hard thing for me to keep in mind on, on a daily basis. It is really hard for me to live in obedience to God and, and think about my eternal inheritance. As I was thinking about that reality this week, I was reminded of something called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Have you heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiments? It was a group of experiments from the 60s and 70s, as all good experiments uh, were, um, <laughs> on, on children, on, on, on young kids. And what they told these kids were, hey, look, uh, they, they set these kids down, they're like four or five years old, and said, here's, here's a marshmallow, and you can either eat the marshmallow right now, or you can wait, and when I come back, you can have two marshmallows or two treats or whatever it was. And uh, they would leave for about 15 minutes, and they'd come back, and they would give the kid, if the kid was able to make it, uh, 
double whatever they had promised or whatever they had given them originally. And as I was thinking about this this past week, I thought, I wonder what those kids looked like as they were struggling. It's easy whenever we're right there in the moment to, to see the marshmallow, to see whatever it is that, that we're that's in front of us. It's, it's easy to, to see the, the value of it. You look at those kids and you see that the ones that probably struggled the most were the ones who you know, touched it, thought about it, smelled it, licked it, picked a little bit off, just put it in the mouth. How do the kids who do well manage it? Well, first of all, you, you could see that there, there were kids who, who valued what was coming, right? They said, okay, I I recognize that there's a value to to what's been promised to me. Two marshmallows are better than one. There are also kids who who believed that what they were told was true. This experiment was done in 2012, but there was kind of a twist to it. In 2012, they did this experiment where they took these two groups of kids and they did an experiment on them before this experiment, before the marshmallow experiment. With one group, they, uh, they did this thing where they like tricked them and told them they had tricked them first. In other words, the kids were kind of suspicious of these, of these people who had done the experiment. And then they put them in that situation. And those kids were way more likely just to eat the marshmallow right away because they didn't, they didn't trust these people. But the kids who did well were those who understood the value of what was promised and, and believed that it was coming. And they're the kids who were able to, to think about it, right? To think about the future. Say, so, okay, I'm not focused on what's in front of me right now. I'm thinking about what's, what's coming. Brothers and sisters, that's our challenge, right? That's our challenge. We have to value God's inheritance. We have to say, okay, the thing that God has promised me is a, is a good thing. It's, it's far better than two marshmallows. Whatever it is that, that God has promised me is far better than whatever I, I have before me, whatever temptations are here now. And the things that I'm tempted by are, are shadows of the good things that God has promised. And not only do I, I believe that, that the things that God has promised have value, I believe that God is going to do the things that he's promised to do. And then I have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to think about those things and be motivated by them. That's what God, God calls us to do. It's what we see here in Colossians 3. It's what we see here in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. In these chapters, we have these, these young women who are examples of faith. And as we go through these two chapters, sections of each chapter, I hope what we're able to do is, is say, okay, you know, like, like God has called me to do, I'm going to value what he's called me to value, I'm going to believe in the inheritance that he's called me to believe in, and I'm going to be motivated by it. I'm going to be motivated to pursue obedience to God as I consider the inheritance that's found in his son, Jesus Christ. So let's do this. Let's kind of look through, uh, as we conclude the book of Numbers with, with this message, let's, let's look through some things we see here as we come to a close of this book, some things we see here about our inheritance. Number one, the first thing is this. The pursuit of God's inheritance consumes the lives of the faithful. The pursuit of God's inheritance consumes the life of the faithful. We're here in Numbers 27 
As you're in Numbers 26, there is a census. And this census is a census of the second generation. The first generation has died. Remember, they they sinned in Numbers 14. And God said, okay, this generation isn't going to enter the promised land. The next generation is going to enter the promised land. And so there's a census. And that census takes place in chapter 26 of Numbers. And as you come, in fact, to the 33rd verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 26, you hear kind of this mention of this guy Zelophehad, tribe of Manasseh, and you see that he has no sons but daughters. Then you come into chapter 27, the census has taken place, and the census is the basis upon which the land is going to be allotted. So you say, okay, big tribes get a lot of land, little tribes get a little bit of land, and that's how we're going to divide up this, this inheritance that God has promised. It's this inheritance that God has promised is a fulfillment of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Now you come into chapter 27, verse 1, and it says that the daughters of Zelophehad appear before the leaders, before Moses and Eliezer and the chiefs of the congregation. And they have this petition, and their petition is verse 3. Our father, they said, died in the wilderness. Okay? He's part of this, this first generation that died. He wasn't among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. So, so here's our dad, and our dad, our dad was definitely part of that group that rebelled in the wilderness in Numbers 14. That, that was the group that he was a part of, and so he, he died as, as God had said that that group was going to die. But our dad wasn't part of the rebellion at Korah, and the rebellion at Korah, that was whenever people were, were literally consumed by the earth, the people who had stood up in rebellion against Moses and his authority, uh, specifically Aaron and his authority, and they said, uh, that was not our dad. Our dad was not part of that group. It wasn't like he was disqualified from inheriting the land and his name continuing, but, but um, he was part of this other rebellion. We understand that, but, but now, because he wasn't disqualified from inheriting the land or having his descendants be a part of this, this, this promise that was made to Abraham, they say, um, verse 4, why then should his name be, be taken away from his clan because he had no sons? And then there's a very bold statement at the end of verse 4. Give to us a, a possession among our father's brothers. And possession there means an, an inheritance of land. They're saying, we want to be a part of this endeavor. We want to be a part of God's promise to our forefather Abraham. Don't leave us out. These women stand as incredible examples for us, right? First of all, they're just great theologians. I mean, these are some women who are able to rightly understand how God has acted with his people. They understand the Abrahamic covenant. They understand the theological significance of the inheritance. They also understand the reality of their father. They say, you know what? We, we acknowledge, and I, I, my hope, my kind of belief based on what we see here is that their father had repented of his sins and he had helped them understand theologically what had taken place in his own life. They say, yeah, we acknowledge that, that he disqualified himself from entering the promised land, and yet he wasn't part of this other rebellion that disqualifies a person from ever receiving this inheritance. And so we, our family wants to be connected to this thing. These women are great examples to us because they understand the value of what God has promised. They believe that it's going to take place. Now, th- think about 
when they're talking. They're talking to Moses as the people are encamped on the plains of Moab. The, the people haven't even begun the conquest of the land yet. And for the women, it's a done deal. Yeah, yeah. I know there's some, there's some uh, formalities to still be worked out here. We actually have to go and conquer, blah, blah, blah. But it's going to happen. And when it happens, we don't want to be on the outside looking in. Let us be a part of this. They value it. They believe it's going to be happening. And, and they're thinking about it. They're not worried right now about how their tent is set up. They're not worried about if they're getting the best camping spot. They're worried about the future. They're consumed by thinking about God's promises. These women are powerful examples for us. They understand. They believe. They're focused on what God has promised, and and they act. In the Pentateuch, when you encounter people who are sinning, people who are acting in disobedience, they're people who don't fear God or believe his promises. They're people who aren't thinking about the inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad, these five young women, are thinking rightly and acting rightly because of their belief. They're an example for us. I'm convinced you and I, we need good examples of what it looks like to live lives of faith right here and right now. You and I need examples of people who are in our, our station of life and are, are living not like everyone else around us who doesn't believe in God's inheritance. We need examples of people who are in our situation in life and are living differently because they believe in a, a coming inheritance. And sadly, sometimes those examples are, are few and far between. I, I just think about my, my own example. You know, I'm, I'm a person who uh, works vocationally. My, my job is ministry. There are a lot of examples for me out there of, of bad ways to, to view life and finances and decisions. I need godly examples of people who are saying, you know what, right now, this is temporary. I'm living a lot of eternity. I've mentioned before, one of the great examples for me is uh, former pastor John Piper. You know, John Piper could have made millions of dollars from his, his books and speaking fees, but, but, but he didn't do so. He chose to turn all the proceeds over from his, his books to this Desiring God entity, and he never even drew a salary from Desiring God until, uh, until retiring from his church ministry. And listen to what he said when a, when a friend asked him about some of his financial decisions. This, this blesses my, my soul. It encourages me. It motivates me in my position. Listen to what he says. He says, beyond, they ask, why did you make these decisions? He says, well, his friend asks him this, and he responds, beyond all doubt, it is more blessed to give than to receive and keep. Right? John Piper rightly understands, look, it's better for me to receive and then give than to receive and keep. He, then he, he says this, my question would be this. So he turns it around. My question is, why would a pastor want to get rich? Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And Paul said that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 9. 
And, and if that's true, if we believe that's true, if we believe that right now to live in such a way in which you desire wealth is to desire things that, that are going to, to lead to temptation and ruin and destruction to your soul, if we believe that, why in the world would we want that to be our heart's desire? Paul, uh, Piper writes after quoting Paul, These texts and many others dispose me to think my soul will be far better off if I put governors on my accumulation. That's good thinking. That is sound theology. That can only be said by a person who is pursuing something beyond the immediate. That can only be said by someone who is pursuing God's inheritance. That can only be said by someone who's consumed with living a life of faithful pursuit of God's inheritance. In our North American cultural context, we are very, we're very private people, right? We, we don't talk a lot about finances, and, and I understand the reality of that. But, you know, I, I also think there is a, a health in, in openness with, with people with whom you're close and saying, you know what, this is, this is what I'm thinking about my finances, this is, you know, this is generally what God has, has given me, and, and this is how I'm living. Is this right? You know, you're in my life circumstances, and, and, and this is kind of how God has, has provided. Does this reflect the life of a person who's consumed with the immediate or a person who's consumed with, with thinking about eternity? Is this the life of a person who's trying to, to keep one foot here and one foot in eternity? Is a person who's kind of licking the marshmallow? sniffing it, rolling it around, but, oh, I need to wait, but, oh, man, this marshmallow is so good. Or is this a life of a person who said, man, I am, I'm consumed with eternity? It's been said, and I think this is true, we can tell if we're rightly passionate about God's inheritance by looking at, at two things, right? Our, our calendar and our checkbook. Does my calendar, does what, what, I'm, what I'm doing on a daily basis reflect the life of a person who's, who's consumed by thinking about God's eternal inheritance? Or does it re- reflect the life of a person who's saying, you know what, this is it. I need to snag everything I can day to day right now. It's how I s- spend my, my resources. I, and this is, this is the checkbook. This is the balance uh, register of, of a person who is thinking about eternity. Or is this the, is this the, the, the checkbook of a person savings account, register of a person who is accumulating for, for the immediate. The pursuit of God's inheritance is something that consumes the life of the faithful. Here's, here's the second thing I want us to think about. Number two, the possession of an eternal inheritance does not require possession of an earthly family. The possession of an eternal inheritance does not require possession of an earthly family. And I could have put this point, I could have combined it with the, the next point we're going to look at, but I wanted to take a moment and, and just have a special emphasis here for those who are, who are not married, for those perhaps who are divorced or who are single through other means or widows or widowers, um, because I think this is an important point for us to consider. What happens next? Moses brings the cases of Lophahad's daughters to the Lord. And how does God respond? God says that they are they're right. And that word right means that they are, they're, what they're saying is true. It's, it's righteous. It's in accordance with, with God's will. What they think is how God thinks about this situation. Now, here's, here's why I want to emphasize this in a, a special way. 
if you're attending Bethany Community Church, there's a kind of an average person. No one here is exactly average, but there's kind of an average person. The average state in our church is to be uh, in a family unit with, uh, with children. You know, that's, that's the average person at Bethany Community. But that's not the only condition at Bethany Community. And it's certainly, if you went to a different church or you're in a different demographic, the situation might be different. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes about whenever he was a pastor at, at his church in New York City. It was a church of about 4,000 people, and 3,000 were single. Okay? So 4,000 people, 3,000 were single. That's a totally different dynamic on a Sunday morning or throughout the week, right? But whatever state we find ourselves in, the temptation that we face is to believe that that's either the ideal condition or that's the normal condition or that's the, the condition in which every other person should be thinking about. And as I look at my sermons and my illustrations from 10 years ago or 15 years ago, they are much different. I mean, I am talking about, 15 years ago, I'm talking about, uh, you know, parents with children in diapers much more than I am now. Okay, that's not an illustration that makes its way into my uh, sermons very often because I'm just not thinking about that. That's not my condition right now. I'm talking about the, the, the challenges of rebellious teenagers now. No, I'm not really. Um, certain, you know, I actually, I was approached by a family member over Thanksgiving, extended family member. In fact, I'm not even sure. if I don't know how we're related. But uh, you know, she was telling me, she goes, you know, I think pastors need to talk more about being empty nesters. And, and she's saying that because that's the condition which she finds herself right now. My, my, my thought is this, um, and I think it's important for us to say as a church. Family is a gift from God, and being a part of a family is a, is a gift from God, even if sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Um, but it's, it's a temporary gift, okay? It's, it's a temporary gift. It's a temporary gift that points us to something better. I, I love my family. I, I thank God every day for my wife and my children, but it's, it's temporary. Now, we know a couple things, as I've been thinking about this, a couple things. One, we know that the, the normative process by which God talks about his inheritance and his promises and his covenant, the normative way that he talks about that is within a family context. And so as you read through Scripture, you see God talking about parents t- teaching their children about the Lord. You see um, fathers in Ephesians uh, 6 are to be instructing their children and and they're to be loving their wives. And you see in Deuteronomy 6 the responsibility of a parent to instruct their children in spiritual things. You see, go through the, the book of Acts. You see people responding to the gospel within family units. And so that's, that's a normal thing. But what we also realize is just because that's often a normal way in which that happens, it's not the only way. Historically, people have been part of a family in 19. 19- 70s, I think there were, uh, you know, 66% of people were, were part of a, a family unit. Today, less than half of Americans are married. Most adult Americans are single, okay? That's a new, it's a new demographic. It's a, it's a new, new uh, uh, place, culture in which the church exists. And what do we, what do we say? Well, theologically, the fact that God speaks about working within the family doesn't mean that he has uh, only love and concern for the family. His love and concern is for individuals. In fact, I would say even more strongly, the family is a temporary phenomenon 
but the people within the family are eternal. God's ultimate plan is not for the deification of the family. He's not saying, you know, I'm, I'm working this whole process of, of salvation so that someday we can worship the family. No, no. The family is a temporary structure that exists in order to point the people within it to eternal realities and worship of God. The family exists for God's glory. God doesn't exist for the family's glory. And the single people in our church need to hear that and be encouraged by that. Zelophehad's daughters need to hear that and are encouraged that. Their participation in God's covenant does not require that they also be part of a family relationship. For single, what does this mean? Well, it means you don't demonize or deify the family. You don't say, man, I'm so glad I'm not a part of that dysfunctional organization because, man, who would want to be a part of that? I'm looking at the, I want that curb on my freedom, that whatever. No, family's a good thing. God's given it as a gift. But you also don't deify it. You don't say, oh, man, that, that's the end all. No, it's, it's a temporary phenomenon that exists for God's glory to, to, to point us to spiritual truths. If you're single, if you're married, you have a unique opportunity to pursue the inheritance, not the family. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, hey, unmarried guys, look, you can be anxious about the things of the Lord. Uh, unmarried women, here's a cool thing. You can be, you can be uh, anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. If you are single, you say, okay, I don't exist for this, this tent. I exist for my eternal inheritance. If I'm married, I say, I don't exist for my kids. I don't exist so I can teach my children about how wonderful this tent life is. I don't exist so I can t- teach my children about how wonderful our family is. I don't exist. We don't exist as a family so we can talk about how wonderful our relationships are. Of course, those relationships are good, but that's not why we ultimately exist. I don't teach my kids, okay, here's about career, and here's about academics, and here's about athletics, this, 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 this tent, this tent, this tent. I say, okay, we're part of the structure and we exist within these family structures of, of doing life together and pursuing academics. and All that is for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. But it's temporary. Here's the third thing about an inheritance. Number, number three, the joy of an inheritance may be experienced by everyone. Again, this is kind of... You could, you could have combined number two and number three. But here's what we see as, as the, the, the thing concludes here. God says, okay, here's, here's the plan. Here's how we make sure that everyone has the opportunity to be a part of an entity in which their, in, their inheritance is, is secure. We see examples throughout Scripture in which there's a temptation to believe that our claim to God's grace is greater than another person's claim to God's grace. Does that make sense? What we need to constantly remind ourselves is, look, um, I'm not the special recipient of God's grace because of how wonderful I am, but whether I am single or married, whether I'm a Jew or a Greek, whether I am this political affiliation or that political affiliation, or whether I'm a part of, of this social group or that social group, all of us have access by faith in Jesus Christ to experience the joy of an inheritance in Christ. I don't, it doesn't matter my ethnicity. It doesn't matter my gender. Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. I come into the body of Christ saying, I am part of an inheritance I have no right to be a part of. As I start with that, 
it changes in dramatic ways how I relate to other people in the church, other people in my earthly family, other people in the culture. So often today, we're living in an age in which both politically and within the church, there is just a, I think there's just a temptation to believe that we are the victims of other people's wrongdoing against us. And we are somehow in special, special status with God. We deserve God's grace more than other demographics or other groups. And we say, no, you know what? While I was weak, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. And now I have the ability to be saved from the wrath of God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And my commitment now is to rest in the security of the inheritance that's promised to me. I need to repent of ways in which I've undermined or harmed the recipient's of God's inheritance that are not part of my group, and I want to commit myself to sacrificially loving others. Here's the fourth thing for us to think about. Number four, the pursuit of God's inheritance produces obedience in the lives of the faithful. As I'm consumed with pursuing God's inheritance, that pursuit of God's inheritance is going to produce obedience in the lives of the faithful. You come into chapter 36, and the book of Numbers concludes on this very promising note. The, these people come, the, the, the other relatives of uh, Zelophehad come and say, Hey, you know what? Moses, we appreciate what God has said, and we want to live in obedience to him, but there's, there's this problem. Uh, these, these young women are, are young, and there's every possibility that these godly women are, are someday, at least some of them, are going to become uh, married. And so you've, you've given them an inheritance, and now this, this new addition of, of this structure means that their inheritance can go to another family if they marry outside our tribe. And, and, and then what are you going to do, you know, uh, whenever everything is restored in the year of Jubilee, you're going to have these parts of, of our land that now belong to these other tribes. And, and Moses says, you know what? Uh, what you guys have also said is, is right. That word is used again. That's in accordance with how God is thinking. You guys are also passionate about a coming inheritance. Good job. And what they need to do, uh, daughters of Zelophehad, had, you need to marry within this tribe so the land doesn't leave the tribe. And look at how the daughters respond. Verse 10 they did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Mala, I love the fact that the women are mentioned by name too, right? Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka, Noah, these daughters are married to sons of their father's brothers. They're obedient. As the people pursue God's inheritance, there's, there's obedience. Verses 792, they're mirrors of one another. There's, again, showing that, that, that passion for keeping God's inheritance, pursuing God's inheritance. And as they're passionate about that, they believe it's coming, it's held secure for them, and there's obedience in verse, in verse 10. As we respond to the gospel, we become a people who are tent dwellers. We understand that we are sinners. We understand that we're enslaved to sin. We understand that we deserve God's wrath. And yet we believe that Jesus Christ lived a, a perfect life for us. He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And we believe that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. We have an inheritance promised for us. And yet we believe that we are people who are not yet 
arrived at, at our inheritance. And so we live right now in this, in this in-between time. And the temptation is, is so strong. We have that, that family member who is just, oh, they're just a piece of work. And it is so hard to respond in a godly way right now in the tent. We have that, that co-worker that, oh my goodness, if, you know, if it were illegal to be a jerk, that person would be in prison for life. I mean, it's just, it's, and so it's hard. How do we respond rightly? We, 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 we know the, the lure of our, of our flesh, the, the lure of, of, of obtaining physical things and, and physical pleasures, and we just, we, we smell that marshmallow. We lick that marshmallow. We, it's, it's there. It's present with us in profound ways. What's, what's God's call on us? Put it down. There's something far more valuable for those who are in my son. My my son himself. And you need to not only see the value of that, you need to believe that that is a a true promise. You need to believe that he who has promised it is, is good and will fulfill what he's promised to do. And then it needs to consume your thoughts. Because it is so easy to look at the other marshmallow and just kind of be consumed with whatever it is this world has to offer. And God's calling us is in a turn away and look to me and look to my son Jesus and, and be meditating on that and passionate about the things that I have promised for you. It's hard. But it's what God and his grace calls us to do. As we're consumed with thinking about his inheritance, it changes our present. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your grace in helping us to be obedient. We recognize that in and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to persevere. We, we can't do it. The, the enticements are, are far too strong. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us to live in him. And as we live in him, for our lives to be changed, and we walk in obedience and grace, as we look to you, the author, perfecter of our faith, who has an inheritance secure and ready for us. We pray for your grace in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.